Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's. The initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Welcome back to She Dynasty. This week, I am talking to Sarah Kunst, the Managing Director of Clio Capital. Sarah is also a contributing editor at Mary Claire Magazine. Kunst was named as a future innovator by Vanity Fair in 2018, and Mary Claire named her as one of the six women who could teach you how to be successful before the age of 35. She's also been named as a Forbes 30 Under 30 and as one of the top 25 African Americans in tech by Business Insider. I'm excited to talk to Sarah today, and I'm hoping that all my listeners will learn all about venture capital and how that works. All right. Hi, Sarah. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here today. So first of all, um, I want everyone to know that I met you because of a a mutual um, person that we both know Mm -hmm. who is Arielle Patrick. Yes. She is a force and I love her because she keeps recommending new women to me um, to be on my podcast. Great. Well, um, you know, I did a lot of research on you. I listened to some of your other podcasts. Um, You know, we're going to deep dive into what it is you do because I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people um, who are listening don't really understand what a venture capitalist does. And I think that we want to break it down and really simplify it. But before we get there, I want to hear a little bit about your past and how you got to where you are today, because obviously you've done a lot of prep to get here. So um, when I listened to your podcast, one of the things I was surprised to hear was that when you were a child, you worked on a farm, a family farm, is that correct? Uh, Not my family's farm, family friend's farm, but yeah, I'm from a small town, very small town in Michigan, and where I'm from, they're just like little farms, and so there were people who needed people to help pick strawberries, and so I did it. Right, so how long did you do that for? Um, I think just one or two summers, but it was, you know, I was a kid, and I was making like hundred dollars a day for like a week and a half because they're very wow. short seasons so it's like a lot, lot of money that yeah. is a lot of money yeah. for a kid probably taught you a lot of lessons doing that as a I'm child i'm sure i just spent it all on candy <laughs> of course well um you're obviously uh, very entrepreneurial and we're going to get into all the things that you've done but i'm just curious were there any clues as a child that you would be so driven i mean i think that i've always been myself right like now i'll see friends kids and as young as like two or even younger you can kind of see their different personalities come out it's really interesting and so I think for me I was always taught that you work hard at something if you're gonna do it and you know I've always just liked I've always been very good about finding things I like to do and and not doing things I don't want to do and so when I find something I like to do I want to do it well because otherwise what's the point right how would you how would your parents um have described you as a child it always makes me sad when I see kids who are like, oh, they're smart or, oh, they're this. We got to like push them to do this, right? Like no offense to Tiger Woods' dad, but if you look at Tiger Woods' adult life, it doesn't seem to turn out very well, right? It doesn't, no. And so I, I think that it's – I think that there is an industrial complex around sort of 
pushing kids who seem like they might be smarter, they might be super talented to like excel, you know, as young as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's the point? You're going to still be around for another 80 years after that. Like, right. enjoy it. Take your time. Right. Um, and so for me, you know, the, the focus was never on sort of, oh, you seem really smart or oh, you seem really driven. You know, it was, okay, cool. We know you're smart. So, you know, you can't, like, if you're getting C's, you're going to be in trouble because it doesn't mean that you're having academic problems. It means you're not doing your homework, right? So there were basic things like that, but it was just sort of, cool, like, do stuff you love, work hard, and, you know, do good things in the world. And and this is sort of the path they've chosen. Were you a straight-A student? No, because I also just didn't, like, school was something that you realized really quickly, like, okay, I'm just performing so some random teacher likes me. And so, you know, I would get a lot of A's, but I didn't care if I didn't because it just wasn't, you know, my driving force. And I also think that there are very, very, very few paths in life where you need to get straight A's, right? Maybe if you really, 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 if you're going into investment banking, maybe. If you're going into uh, like law school or or a PhD program, yes, because then you're still just functionally performing, right? But, um, you know, if you're trying to get straight A's at your high school so that you can get into Harvard, there's so many other kids around the world doing that, that like, maybe, but I guarantee that Harvard rejects more straight A students and valedictorians than they accept. I'm so happy you're saying this. I have a 16-year-old who's obsessed with the idea of going to Harvard, so I can't wait till she hears that. I mean, her best strategy is to move out of L.A. because there are far too many kids (laughs) in the zip code, in the socioeconomic stratus who are trying to go, and she needs to go and move to, like, North Dakota, where she'll be one of three people to apply, and they'll go, oh, good. We need that (laughs) I don't know how we're going to make that happen, but I'll definitely consider it. Sounds like she's moving to North Dakota. (laughs) All right. So um, I want to kind of hone in on this entrepreneurial spirit again. Mm-hmm. At what age did you start to realize that you had something that was, you know, that would sparked inside of you? There's a book that I've actually never read, but I really like the title. That some old football coach wrote called The Score Takes Care of, its, takes care of Itself, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that if you practice, if you play well, if you show up and you're a good team, you'll win because doing those things means that you're going to score points and the score goes up, right? Right. Versus being obsessed with the score. And right. so I've always sort of, you know, ascribed to that mentality. I'm deeply not a box checker. It's not something that's particularly interesting to me to say, well, I have to do this and I have to go here and how do I get on this and how do I, like, I don't care. I do what I want to do. And then the output of that, right, like I started a venture fund because there wasn't um, a fund doing what I thought they should do. Mm-hmm. You know, people who have entrepreneurial spirits mm-hmm. um, are a little bit of a different breed. Yeah. You have to take on a lot of risks, a lot of challenges, and that's not for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Some people like to go into more corporate structures and, you know, kind of climb the corporate ladder versus people who just have this need and this drive to kind of do their own thing and start new things. And, you know, one of the examples is, and we'll get into this, is I read that you were working at Chanel for mm-hmm. a while in mm-hmm. the um, marketing department, mm-hmm. um, but you left that to mm-hmm. go work for some startups mm-hmm. and you know some some people would think well wow why would she leave something like so prestigious and yeah. stable for something that you know isn't as stable yeah and that probably plays into that that need for something yeah, to I build I think a lot of it is just like what your personal interest and tolerance is right so 
some people, have you ever been on vacation with somebody and you're in a new country and all they want to do is find a McDonald's? Right. Because all they want to do, no matter where they are in the world, is like eat a burger and fries. And feel comfortable right? in their own and, skin. And in your mind, like, sure, you might get food poisoning from that street food stand that's on a Michelin guide, but you'd much rather have a night of food poisoning than 10 days of McDonald's. Exactly. Right. And there's no right or wrong in that. It's just what feels better to you. Right. And, and so I think that. If being in a safe corporate role feels really good to you, either because that's where you thrive or that's, you know, sort of you want the stability of that paycheck or you you like having a place to go or you're not super self-directed, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. The world needs tons of that because otherwise people running around starting companies have no one to work for them, right? So it's it's totally fine. I think it's – and it's also fine, especially when you're younger, to, 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 to dabble, right? So to say, look – I've been inside of a big corporate structure for a few years. I'm looking at a new job. I can choose between another big corporate structure or something, you know, riskier. And you're either going to find out that's a better path for you or you're going to hate it and go back to the corporate. And then 10 years from now when you're sitting in your corporate job and yet another board meeting where there's 20 people around the table discussing nothing, you'll remind yourself that you know that this is the best place for you. Right. Okay. So tell us, let's jump forward. Um, so college, where'd you go to college? Michigan State University. And your major? Uh, advertising. Awesome. So that's probably played a huge role in kind of what you do today, just kind of understanding mm. a little bit about the fundamentals of what it takes to build a brand. and mm, Kind of, but not really. I mean, one, I don't think majors matter unless, again, you want to be like a doctor, in which case you should probably learn something about science. But um, beyond that, I mean... Here's a fun fact. Harvard doesn't even have a business major. You can't major in business at Harvard, even though obviously tons of business leaders oh, go there. That's really interesting. Right? So so it's it's less about, I think, what you what your major is in college um, and much more about kind of how you spend, at least for me, it was much more about how I spent my time in college and, and the, the life skills I learned. Um, you know, I can read books on my own. Correct. And so tell us, first job out of college. Uh, with Chanel in marketing. Okay. And in college, you actually did some brand ambassador work. Mm-hmm. Yep. I worked for a lot of brands like Ford Motors and uh, Red Bull and Tag Body Spray. And so a lot of big uh, corporate brands. Okay. So after Chanel, you then jumped to some more startup type companies. Mm-hmm. Tell us about those. You know, the interesting thing to bridge back to what you said about sort of Chanel so prestigious is once you've worked at this sort of if you graduate college and you immediately go work at the most prestigious place in an industry and you you don't want to spend the rest of your career there, it's actually really easy to leave because I would meet people who were maybe 10, 15 years older than me who were at, you know, less prestigious brands and they were like, oh, I, you know, I'm here and I've been here and I'm, I just want to keep, you know, climbing the ladder. So like in terms of brand-wise switching companies so that eventually I can work at Chanel. And so when you start there – if it's not for you, like there's nowhere else to go. I mean, there's like basically Hermes. Like there's n- there's exactly. almost nothing else to do, and so it becomes a lot easier when you're like, I like it, I don't love it, to leave because then you. I also knew that if I didn't love the startup world, every other brand would want to hire me because I work somewhere that almost no one had. Right. And so, and, where was the startup brand that you went to? Um, so I I worked at a variety of startups, um, mainly in the digital media space. This is like when digital media was sort of taking off, like right when the iPhone had launched. And so there was this sort of push for all of a sudden, you know, you could you could 
access the internet on your phone. And and so there is a, an explosion of kind of content brands and there was a mix of things like newsletters and like Twitter and, and social media and all of that. And so I worked at a brand initially called Guest of a Guest that was um, really focused on digital media. So it was sort of an early kind of you know, Refinery29 type brand. And and I also knew all of those people. So like Refinery29 and Thrillist and all these things that have come grown to be these huge bustle and have grown to be these big brands, you know, eight, 10 years ago, we were all sort of just hanging out at bars in New York being like, what, what are we going to put on the internet? Right. Okay. And so then soon after you started your own company, Pro Day, is that correct? Um, a few years after, yeah. So I, I worked for a few different media brands. I think that, again, there's sort of a, a rush sometimes to like start your own thing. And if, if you have a really great idea um, that you're like actually have worked on and, and there's some traction and you're ready to go off on your own, great. But it is another one of those things where like you don't need to start your own company by 25. You can, you totally could and should, but it's like such a huge boom of people starting their own companies right now, just especially Gen Z. It seems like I almost worry that there's going to be this huge void in the workforce for major corporations not having anybody who wants to work for them because everybody wants to start their own internet brand. Is that is that an issue at all, do you think? Um, I think it's a good issue, right? If nobody wants to work for you, then you should think about what you're doing wrong, right? And so I think that that the brands, that are the companies that treat people well and who, you know, that their employees like working there are not going to struggle to find people who pay fairly all of that. I think the brands that don't, one of two things might be happening. They might just be legacy brands or legacy corporate companies that are kind of, they don't need to hire as many people because they're, you know, kind of winding down, right? You think about who needs to work at like a printer paper company anymore? Right. Like nobody nobody uses paper, right? right? So it's it's kind of okay that nobody wants to go work there because it, it's sort of fading into obsolescence and it just is. Um, there are not very many horse and buggy companies in the U.S. anymore, right? So I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, the one thing that I think about never having worked for anybody else is that there's a structure that – It's good to learn and also a discipline. And some people are incredibly Mm self-disciplined, but most people aren't. And even if you're self-disciplined, if you work alone, you're sort of in a sort of void of one person. Mm -hmm. And when you have to go in and you have to work, you know, however your team works or however your company works, if it's you start at 8 a.m. and you're done by 3 or if you start at, you know, 10 a.m. and you're done by 7, it teaches you that sort of schedule and how to work with others so important yeah and and that's the thing that even if it's like six months or a year at a job you hate you're at least like learning how to be a human in the workforce absolutely so tell us about the inspiration for pro day what started that what was Um, the spark yeah so i mean i had a lot of experience in digital media and i'd spent a lot of time doing that and so to me you know sort of taking uh when i was looking at kind of what what holes are there in the market i felt like when I would travel and I was busy with work and I didn't have time to actually go to the gym um, and go to a class, there wasn't really an easy way to just get fitness content. Mm-hmm. And so, and also ins- inspirational people to get it from. And so started Pro Day to really fill that gap in the market. And it is a gap in the market, but the the hard thing is that building an app-based company is very, very, very hard because when you think about sort of 
how you get people to know about your brand. Building brands, period, is very is become a very expensive thing mm-hmm. because for the most part, when we say we want to build a brand, we mean we're going to build it via social media, mm-hmm. right? Because that is word of mouth now. Correct. And social media, the people running those companies are very, very smart. And so anytime you are trying to direct people to something commercial, they want you to pay for it, right? right? And, and when you're a big brand, a big company, that's fine. When you're a really small company, that's incredibly expensive. And so it was an interesting sort of learning for me. I ran the company for two and a half years that you can be right about filling a need in the market. You can be able to get the right people on board. You can do everything right. And it can still just be too expensive, Mm -hmm. right? It's like if you open an amazing, amazing restaurant, but it's like in a neighborhood that just nobody can go to in the evening because there's so much gridlock and traffic and nobody, you know, your restaurant will probably fail even though it it shouldn't in theory. Um, But sometimes there are forces outside of market forces that really just make it almost impossible to succeed. And then you sort of get to a point where you can either totally change how you do business or what your business is. Right. Um, in, in the sort of tech world, we call that pivoting. Or you can say, you know what, like, this is the business I wanted to build. And if it's such that I can't build it right now, then like, maybe there's something else I want to be doing. So tell us how you started Pro Day. Like, what was the first step? So I had already worked at a bunch of startups, right? Mm-hmm. So I already knew how to start a company. So for me, it wasn't really a sort of methodical, how do I go about doing this? Because mm-hmm. I just knew how you to knew do it You knew what to already. do already. Yeah. And so it wasn't like I, I – sometimes people will ask me questions about like, how did you do X? And I can tell you how I did it, but it's probably not super helpful because I did it – right? It'd be like if you started another ad agency. If you started another ad agency at this point – how you did it is probably not super applicable because you've already done it at such a high level. Really good point. But I think what you just said is really important also. If you're interested in starting a company, it's a great idea to go work for another startup oh, yeah. first. Learn on somebody else's dime. For yeah. sure. Because then you just carry the knowledge forward and that's invaluable. I could literally start any company and anything in like if you give me, you know, 24 hours, I can get you incorporated as a, as a corporation and I can get, you know, your like set up and, and sort of the basic website and the basic branding and the basic like the name, like the whole thing. And so once you know how to do that, it just becomes this turnkey thing. Mm-hmm. But the way that you sort of develop that muscle, I think, is by learning at other places, right? And, sure. and going into other like I remember the first time, you know, I learned how to do like product stuff, right, in, in, in QA, which is quality assurance, which mm-hmm. is like just user testing, right? So going through and saying, okay, here's a website. Well, you press every button and to make sure it all works. I can remember the first time I did it. Do I remember when I did it for Pro Day? No, because by that point I'd done it 100 times right. for 10 different companies. And so it's just second nature. Yeah, you also in one of your interviews talk about um, how quickly you like to make decisions. You're not someone who likes to pontificate on things for a very long time. And I think that's very, very powerful in business. I do think people um, overthink things a lot of times and ask too many opinions. And you were talking about how um, when somebody mentioned uh, the name Pro Day, Mm -hmm. you just kind of went with it, just kind of felt right. And you just didn't overthink it. And you went with it. Talk about the importance of being able to make a decision. I mean, have you ever been at dinner with somebody or behind somebody in line at a coffee shop who just can't order? Yes. And you know that frustration you feel towards them? Like, don't be that person, right? right? And and it, it really don't be that person on a lot of levels, right? Because when you do that in your life, people don't really want 
to deal with you because it just everything takes too long right. you can't get through the coffee shop you can't you know if 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 I see that in you when we go order coffee and then you're talking about how you're single and I have like a wonderful friend I don't really want to set you up with them because then you're going to be like going back and forth for 10 years like I'm not sure they're the one right we have two kids together but I can't tell right. like no, just just you know, decide what you want. There's there's literally a optimal stopping algorithm, which is in any one decision. Once you've gone through two thirds of the options, you just pick the next one, right? Because it's just as likely to be the right decision as anything else. Yeah, as a leader, it's very important to be able to make decisions quickly and show your team under you that you can do that. Because otherwise, it just makes them not confident. Yeah. what you're doing and makes them question everything it's also just a waste of time like it's fine to just not think about things i use uh the snooze button on gmail very liberally but mm-hmm. if i snooze something i'm not thinking about it right i'm i'm hunting that decision until it comes up again and then i decide got it so tell us what happened with pro day um so ran it for two and a half years and i mean the thing about companies is you you build them, you run them, you're raising money, and then at some point there's sort of a diminishing returns after a while. And if the company starts to not do well, and in my case, like I said, it's just it's really expensive to acquire users. Mm-hmm. And so once you realize that, then you sort of should start probably playing around with a few new ideas mm-hmm. of like, well, what about this way to acquire users? What about this way? What about this right. way? What about this way? And if none of them are going to work and you're having, you know, serious conversations with smart people and you're reading what's going on in your industry and you're looking at other companies, if none of them are really quite working, then, you know, that's when you say, well, maybe this isn't going to work. Right. And that's okay. And I bet that that experience being on the other side of the coin where you had to raise, you know, your own money for your own company is probably so invaluable now that you're doing it for others. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it definitely gives you more empathy. I'd worked in startups already for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. and so I... But it's different when it's your own, it, right? It is different, but I, I think that, um, and again, like you only have your experiences, so you don't know what it would mm-hmm. be like if you had a different experience, but I think that having worked at companies before, like I'll see sometimes first-time founders who've never worked at an early-stage startup before, and mm-hmm. I think of early-stage as like, less than 10 people, right? right? Where you, wherever you hire you are, you're the first person to be hired mm-hmm. into that role. If their business fails, then a lot of times it fails because they didn't have a lot of experience. If their business succeeds, then they sort of never, it's like the people who like met a boy in seventh grade and then married him and then they're just happy forever. And they're like, I don't get why dating so hard for you. And you're like, because you randomly won the lottery, right? right. And it, it's super random and it just as easily could have been, in, you know, a disaster or one week middle school romance. And so I, I think that, it's always a good idea to learn on somebody else's dime and then also just to like know like there's so many things that founders go through that if you've never been at an early stage startup before you think oh my god what's wrong with me this is terrible like everything's breaking and if you've been in a bunch of early stage startups before you've seen the movie and you're like oh yeah this always happens right it's normal it feels like every day yeah so i talk about my four s's on she dynasty so do you consider um pro day not coming to fruition a snag or is it something that really helped you to kind of propel to what you're doing today i mean i don't really understand i think that we live in a world that's really obsessed with like was it a success or was it a failure right 
And most things are neither, right? Look at like WeWork or Uber or something, right? There are these huge successes, but then they're a huge failure, but then they're a huge success again. And that's like kind of just life. I mean, they're, they have their own issues, but like that's kind of just life. And so to me, you know, I, I don't think it makes any sense to be like, oh, I'm a failure because I tried something and it didn't work. I also think it's a little bit insane to be like, you know, really my that fact that I started a company and then it shut down is a success because of what I learned about myself. Like, no, it's just life, right? It's just part of the process. <laughs> it's just a process and it's just something that you move through and you yeah. learn from. I think the, the only absolute, I would argue there's probably no such thing as absolute success. I would argue that the only absolute failure is if something happens and you don't, you, you just end up stuck and you can't move through it. I don't think that everything has a lesson in it, but I think that you can generally learn from things. Um, and, and you know, it, it, but I, I guess to me, like the, the, the idea that you need to bucket something in one or the other. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, you know, I've been in business for 23 years. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of my failures have taught me what the right decision is yeah. to do the next time. But it's just like you said, it's part of the process. So just putting it in a like that was that was good or that was bad. It's it's almost kind of simplifying it too much. It's yeah, just I mean, part it's, of the journey, yeah. the process. And like to I, I always use dating as an analogy because a lot of startup world is very similar. Um there's so many times where you break up with somebody and you think it's a failure and you're so sad and you can't believe it failed. And then you meet the next person and you're like, oh my God, like if if that hadn't stopped, then I couldn't be in this and this is so much better, right? And and so all of a sudden that breakup goes from a failure to like a success. Right. Because if you had stayed in, if that relationship had been successful, quote unquote, then you wouldn't be in this other thing that's maybe a much better fit for you. I love that. Okay, so let's move forward to Clio Capital. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to hear, how did you jump from Pro Day to this idea? So it was obviously a shift. And um, tell us about, you know, the inspiration for this. So before I started my company, I worked at a venture capital fund. And again, I was learning on someone else's dime, right? I was learning about what a VC firm is like, how to think about investing, how to, you know, find deals. And I was getting to know other people in my industry. And then I decided to start a company. Um, but even while I was starting the company and was working at the company, you know, I worked with four other venture funds in various roles. So I was a mentor at an, a couple accelerators. I was uh, an advisor at Bumble, the dating app, helping them launch their corporate VC arm. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a board at Michigan State University. So you're doing all this at the same time. Yeah, I mean, those were sort of like I was on a I was on a date the other day, and the guy's like, you know, I don't feel like you have any hobbies. I was like, I really like working. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's what I choose to do with relate. my time. I don't need to play tennis. I'm very bad at tennis, right? So so yeah, and then I was on a board at Michigan State where we would invest into venture capital funds and private equity funds. Mm -hmm. So even when I was running my company, at various times I had you know probably up to six different like involvements with, with six different funds and accelerators mm -hmm. that, you know, made it so that when I was thinking about what's next, venture, you know, and going back into venture and then deciding to start my own fund became an obvious path because I'd been training for it. Right. And so it's like if you have any of those friends who you're like, oh, what are you doing today? And they're like, oh, I ran a half marathon. And you're like, what? Those friends are never people who just woke up one day without ever having run a mile in their life, mm -hmm. right? They downplay it, but they get up three, five days a week 
and they go and they run five miles. Right. So running 12 miles is a lot easier, right? I think that there's a huge thing to be said for doing something full-time, all-in, and really learning it. Right. But then there's also a lot to be said for sort of dropping in in a bunch of different areas, right? And you know that because you run an ad agency. And so you have different clients in different areas. So like if you did Crest, you know a little bit about toothpaste. And if you, you know, and and so if you decided that, you know a little bit about a lot of things. So if you ever decided, look, I want to go in-house full-time at Crest, like you, you can make an interesting educated decision because you've done a little bit of it. Right. All right. So a few people came to me and they were embarrassed to even ask, some people didn't even know what a venture capitalist fund is, what you guys do. So can you just kind of back up and break it down for everyone listening? Yeah. So, I mean, a venture capital fund invests in startups and venture backable startups. And so what that means is, you know, if you're opening a restaurant or a yoga studio, it's probably not venture backable because, you know, even at scale, you'll have maybe five locations. Maybe if you decide to franchise, there will be 200 locations, um, but it, it's not really going to be something that scales like Facebook to 3 billion people around the world or whatever they're at, right? Um, so so venture-backable companies are things that can kind of grow to be infinitely large. Um, globally. Is globally it- or, or nationally, right? It, it okay. depends. There are okay. certain things like Uber is not in China, right? And, and because of uh, political issues, they probably never will be. Right. And I don't even know if Uber is in India, right? So right. there's two or three billion people in the world who are just never going to be in an Uber in their home country, but it can still be a massive company. Understood. Um, but uh, it's really how, how big can an idea get, right? And so toothpaste, to continue with that example, every human functionally in America and a lot of other countries uses toothpaste paste pretty much every day mm-hmm. or they, they should and they right. know they should right so if you think about oh my gosh that's actually a huge market that could be if you built a company in that space it could be venture capital backable right and so if you start to build something that is on track to become infinitely large um and and also scales meaning you know you could have a massive um, massage studio, right? But every human has to be massaged by another human. And so as you scale, your expenses never go down. The costs never go down, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas with other, um, and even with Uber, one big bet that they're making is that 20 years from now, there won't be drivers. There'll be driverless cars that take us around so that they can scale infinitely. Um, but but it tends to be that once you're building one of these businesses that's probably internet enabled because it's 2019 and everything's internet enabled, um, that you know if there's a huge market there and your take on it is something that can be a huge part of the market, right? So if you're selling million-dollar tubes of toothpaste, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody needs toothpaste, but there's not that many people who are going to buy a million-dollar tube. Right. But if it's a $5 tube, okay, that's a good price, right? That's a price that a lot of people will buy, and there are a lot of people who use toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And if people start to get interested in it, either you spend some of your own money and, and make some prototypes and have some testers, or you know you you start social media page and you get a lot of followers talking about it, or you're an expert in the space already, then you're at a point where you go, huh, maybe I should raise some money and, and go – do it a little bit bigger. And what that usually means when you raise money is you're selling, instead of taking a loan that you have to pay back, you're selling parts of the company to right. somebody. Okay. Is tech always an important part of the equation or not necessarily? Um, being tech enabled is almost always an important part of the equation because we live in a world where 
the only way to reach, there's functionally no other way to reach millions and millions of people without tech. Right. And so, but so, I mean, separate mm-hmm. from the marketing effort, right? Because you can start a new brand, like mm-hmm. you said, of toothpaste. But um, does there does there have to be an app that's you know kind no. of associated with it for it to be successful in your mind, or no. can you just start I mean, a brand just understanding that enabling people to know about it through technology is a big part of it? Yeah, I mean, it one you they need to know about it through technology. They need to be able to buy it through technology. Understood. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the investor. Some investors only want to invest in in actual tech, and that's fine. And I would argue that building an app for your toothpaste so that your toothpaste has an app is sort of building for building's sake and not because it actually solves any problems. But maybe you have a toothbrush that is an electric toothbrush that also, like, monitors the level of plaque on your teeth. And that could be, you know, something that needs an app and it needs to be tech enabled. So are you the middle woman between the person who has the idea and the money? Explain that. Um, no. So the way that venture capital funds work is you you raise your money once, right? And then you go out and you get to choose what to invest in. What people in venture capital do is I go to people and say, look, here's what I want to invest in. Here's the kinds of things I want to invest in. Here's how I see the world. Here's what I think the world's going to be like in five years, 10 years, whatever. And they say, okay. Um, we'll give you money and then you're going to go out and invest in, you know, over 10 companies a year or something. And and so I might get money from somebody who doesn't know a lot about tech, right? Maybe they're older. It's just not the space they work right. in. But they have the funds to do it and want yeah, to play. And, and so they don't want to go – or they might, you know, I've raised money from people who have built huge tech companies and been CEOs of huge tech companies and candidly, they're kind of tired, and they're really rich, and they want to break. And for them, the idea of like running around and looking at you right. know a hundred new companies a week. So you're vetting everything. Terrible. You're vetting yeah. everything. So do you have to check in with them, or there's just a trust? Once they kind of sign on with you, you they just kind of um, trust I mean, your guidance. I send, they they have access to what I invest in, right? Mm-hmm. They they can log on to you know the the investor back end where they can see you know what the current positions look like they can get their tax documents all of that stuff can they have an opinion if they don't like no. something you're doing they can no i mean there's a contract there's a contract there's not an opinion right, right. so um I can't invest in LLCs, limited liability corps. No venture fund can because of the way the taxes work on them. Oh, interesting. And so, why is that? Explain that. Uh, it's something about flow through taxes, mm-hmm. and so it's just you just can't. Okay. And so there's a tax issue with it, and you can't do it. What kind of company does it have to be? Uh, a, a corporation, Got a C corp. Yeah. Okay. But if I invest in a company, and one of my investors is like, "Hey, I that person is my mortal enemy," like, okay. Right. Don't send them a congratulations note. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So it's it's not an opinion based thing and, and that's true in in almost all of business. Okay. So let's uh let's break down the process a little bit. So let's say someone, you know, is you know, in their late twenties, they have a great idea for a company, they don't have a dime in their pocket, but it's truly a great idea. How do they start? Um so one big caveat is, generally speaking, when you're first starting, you're not going to talk to a venture capitalist. Okay. You're going to talk to angel investors. Okay. So I can walk you through that process because yes, I've been please. an angel investor. Um, but if it's just you with kind of an idea, talking to a venture capital investor is not going to be a good use of your time. So you're skipping a huge step by doing that. So explain you, that. Yeah. I mean, it, a lot of times, if you're smart and interesting and you know you have a friend who knows a, a VC 
um, and you get an introduction, they'll have like coffee with you or whatever because for us, it's like, okay, great. I, it's like free consulting, right? I can pick their brain and say, oh, what? Do have you heard of this brand? What do you think about this? Do you like this? But it, I'm not going to invest in you, right? I, I'm not even kicking the tires. I'm literally just picking your brain about the market and then you tell me your idea and you're all excited because you think it's a pitch meeting and I'm like okay cool well you know we don't invest until there's a million in revenue but come back then I'd love to talk right and it's not the end of the world because you you got a nice introduction but often I see people at that idea stage who are chasing you know they're getting on airplanes they're spending all their time they're rearranging their schedule to chase these venture capitalist conversations and those aren't the people who are going to give the money Right. The people, the, the best way to think about fundraising for anything, and this is true for nonprofits, if you're running your own fund, if you're, you know, starting a restaurant, if you're starting a venture backable company, make a list of every rich person you know. Right. And then make a list of like, oh, remember that girl in college whose like uncle was like the CEO of Google? Yep. Add add her to the list, girl's uncle, right? And so really kind of quantify that and then look, think about other kind of affinity groups, right? So really be creative thinking about who those people are. Yeah. Yeah. And then how much so if if I have a great idea, mm-hmm. let's say I have a prototype and mm-hmm. I'm super excited about it and I want to go get angel investors, mm-hmm. how do I know how much of the company to give up? How does that work? Uh, assume that you're going to give up like 20% of the company every time you raise money. Every time. Yeah. So sometimes it'll be closer to 10%, but especially um, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're an engineer building an engine like a very deeply technical product, you can probably get away with 10%. If you're building a consumer type company, it's probably going to be closer to 20. And it's not for any real reason other than just supply and demand. Got it. And so when people come to you, they're already established. You just mentioned a million in revenue. Is that a criteria or something close to that? Um, I don't, I, I'm a little bit more flexible and I'll go a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. but I'm generally speaking not going to be your first investor unless um, you've done it before. And so, with angel investors, they tend to be more understanding that you're still learning how to do what you're doing. It's kind of it's more like a friends and family approach in a sense, right? Yeah, they're helping you the same way that if it were you know your actual parent, right? Or if if you had a lot of capital on your of your own, you would just sort of be you're learning and you're doing things. Versus, okay, we know what it's going to be now. Let's go build it as fast as possible. I want to hear about some of uh, some more of your other criteria that's really important for you when you invest in someone. Um, you know, I think that. There's not a lot of like set in stone rules and it's for the best because if you are, companies are fundamentally different, right? So when Uber first started, that category didn't exist. Right. And so if you say, you know, there, what rules would you have had in place, right? Other than some that are obvious, like, oh, is driving a big market, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, but beyond that, there are almost no rules that you could apply to something that doesn't exist yet. Um, that being said, I think beyond having obviously a big market, being really knowledgeable. It's a huge turnoff for me when founders don't know kind of basic things about their market. Right. How big is the market? Well, what was that acquisition, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and it's just, you know, it, it's just weird to me, right, to to talk to somebody who's like, I'm you know, dedicating my entire life to building a company in this industry, right? To use the Uber example, if if I'd been looking at that deal 10 years ago when they started fundraising and I'd said, cool, how how many taxis are there in the U.S.? If they had been like, well, we don't know. Yeah, weird. 
You got to know. You got to know. know everything. Yeah. How do you not know, right? And one, you have to know everything. And two, like fundraising is hard, particularly if you don't come from money, right? That being said, the internet is free. 100% of people listening to this right now have internet access, right? right? So, so the idea that you can't Google how many taxi drivers are there in the right. U.S. You don't even have to type it in anymore. You can literally press a button on your phone and ask Siri, and Siri will tell you. Exactly. It's important, and I think that's a really, really good place for people to just stop and understand if you're going to approach someone, you've got to know everything there is to know about your business and be an expert. Yeah, and it's also hard because you don't know what people will ask you, right? It might be that no one's ever asked you this random question before. It might even be a bad question on their part, but you should probably, if it's at all vaguely related to, right, it's like studying for a test. Right. In school, you have to learn 500 facts to be asked 10 questions on a test. How much research do you do on the individual person who's approaching you? Um, I do some, but I think that there's... I mean, do you go through like all of their social media and look for that one weird photo they posted um, 20 years ago? Not a ton. I mean, I'll, I'll glance at it. Um, I was once interviewing a girl for a role um, at a company I was running, and... You know, I told her it was an internship, but I told her, like, look, I'll, I'll give you, you know, this internship, but you, you'd have to make your social media private because it was a role in a company where, like, the, like, Malibu bikini pics just didn't work. Right. That being said, if I was running a swimwear brand or a life, you know, a, a, an alcohol brand or a ton of other brands, right, a hospitality brand, I would have loved it. Right. Um, I That's think. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. It, it The way that I think about it is things that are, are like, illegal or borderline illegal Mm -hmm. should be huge non-starters no matter what um but really beyond that like it i was giving this talk recently and somebody asked me you know what i look for in the management styles of my founders i was like i don't care at all right because all they need whatever their management style is like steve jobs the founder of apple was notoriously just a total jerk but everybody knew that and he could still get people to work for him Mm -hmm. what categories really excite you right now um I think every category, and, and that sounds like simplistic, but people often kind of think, oh, it's this one thing, right? For a while it was crypto, for then it was VR, then it was Internet of Things. And and the answer is that the future is so not defined yet. So you don't specialize in one area. Or yeah, you're open I, to any ideas. Yeah, most, most venture funds, um, especially in Silicon Valley, are, we call them generalist funds, right? Mm-hmm. Opportunistic. So they can invest in whatever. There's usually stuff that you'll focus on at a given point in time, right? In 2007, no one was investing in iPhone-related stuff because it didn't exist. So so for the most part in Silicon Valley, funds are pretty broad. So how many proposals are you looking at at any given time? Every week, I probably look at at least 50 pitch decks. Wow. Um, and, you know, some of them I spend... 30 seconds on and it's just something I'm not interested in. You know really quick. Yeah, and others, sometimes I'll look at something and it's really cool, but it's just too similar to something I've already invested in. Mm -hmm. Um, Some things are, the thing about being an investor, again, it's sort of like dating, right? You're not dating the only person in the world worth dating. You're dating the person you chose to date. Mm -hmm. And I I noticed on your website, you have Mm -hmm. a very simple process. Mm -hmm. So tell us, um, how does somebody go about pitching something to you? I mean, anybody can go to cleocap.com, which is my website, and they can submit their pitch deck. 
Um, and, you know, it's literally your name, your email, your two sentences about your company and your pitch deck. And what is the expectation in the pitch deck? What does it have to cover? Basically, it should be like 10 or 15 slides. Mm-hmm. It should explain, you know, kind of like in basic journalism, who, what, when, where, why, how, mm-hmm. right? So self-driving cars are an interesting market. If you've never worked in engineering before, mechanical engineering, you're probably maybe not the right person to start that company because you don't know how cars work, right? right? So it's not just enough to say this is an interesting big market and a lot of money is going to be made, so give me money. There has to be a, a some level of connection of why you're the right person to do it. Okay. Are you allowed to talk about any of the projects that you've recently invested in that um, you're excited about? Um, one that, that I invested in a while ago um, is a non-hormonal birth control drug. So it's called Your Choice Therapeutics. It's not uh, FDA approved yet, but it's moving through the process. And basically, birth control hasn't been innovated on since it was invented in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, the only things that we've changed are like sort of changing like the, the balance of hormones and pills and changing literally just the size of an IUD. That's it. Mm-hmm. And it's insane that it's the number one, 80% of women actively use birth control at some point in their lives. And so the idea that we it hasn't been innovated on ever since it was invented is mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I, in, I invested in that um, because it's a huge opportunity, right? It, it, as a woman, it matters to me. And I think women obviously, you know, deserve to have control over their body and their mm-hmm. choices and all of that. But it's also just a massive opportunity. It's the number one prescription drug that most women take, that most people take, period. And so if you can get a new category right in something like that, it, it the amount of money you can make is pretty much endless. Beautiful. I think everything you just kind of went through is going to be very valuable for people listening because I think people are embarrassed to say and ask. Sometimes they don't really understand what a venture capitalist does. And so I think you've broken it down very simply. So thank you. I guess the one question I have is, um, do you have any actionable advice um, for someone who is ready right now to go to a venture capitalist to in order to stand out, something they could do differently or more interesting? I mean, it's go through the process, but go through the process at like the highest level you can, right? So being just incredibly prepared and and just really being responsive and moving quickly. Um, and that doesn't mean like rushing things, right? But just being really responsive, having all of your data ready, having, you know, as you go through the process, if an investor likes you, they basically meet you and then just immediately sort of start doing what we call diligence, which is research, right? About you, about the market, about the company, about the team, about, you know, who else has invested previously. And the easier you make that process, the faster you move through it. And even if you move through it and get a no, it's still better to know within a week that a certain fund won't invest so you can find other funds. Do you give feedback or do you just kind of say no? Because it takes time. Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? If I've spent, think of it like dating. If you match with a guy in an app and you like run into him at a bar and you talk for five minutes and you're not into him and you don't want to go out with him. You're not going to give him detailed feedback. So you don't really have any detailed feedback. Just, nah, I don't know, wasn't into it. Right. If you date somebody for, you know, see them three times in a week right. and then you just ghost them, that's really odd, right? So I think it's about the same um, way to think about it. And, and we all kind of instinctively know that difference. Mm-hmm. 
think about it like when you go in for a job interview and they're like, look, you come really highly recommended. We love you, but we really thought we'd hire somebody more junior, more senior who had this experience or, you know, who wanted this career path or this salary. So, you know, we, we like you though. So you keep moving through the interview process, but you kind of know and they kind of know that, you know, they really wanted somebody with 10 years experience and you have three years. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see an idea that is almost there where you want to give some advice or do you just kind of let it go if it's not fully baked? Um, Well, the nice thing is that if something's almost there, then they can come back, right? If it's specific about their company, my opinion about your company doesn't matter if I'm not giving you money. Understood. Okay. All right. Well, I think that you have answered all of my questions and I really appreciate you breaking that down for everyone and, and learning about your journey and how you got here. And I really want to thank you for your time today. Of course. Thank you. Thank you.